for a while this morning enjoying the trees and flowers and grass and the sky. And, uh, it's hard to realize in some ways when you can see the beauty of God's creation and it's peaceful around us, as was mentioned in the prayer, that the world is so full of turmoil and trouble and about to break into World War III. But indeed that is the case. I was thankfully sitting in my own backyard, not downtown Seattle. <laughs> if you've been kind of following the news, we've had a, a new country declared. Basically, they've seceded from the United States and taken over six square blocks in downtown Seattle. <clears throat> Actually, I think it consists mostly of the third precinct. They took over the police station, ran the cops off, and now they've set up their own government there and uh, are patrolling it with guns and trying to keep people except the ones they want in out. And they won't let the cops in. They won't let government in at all. And they have an overlord or a warlord there now uh, who's ruling it, which is what happens <coughs> when things break down. And uh, we're going to see that more and more across the country, I think, as our society is in the process of coming apart. So we may see warlords like the one in Seattle. They tried it in Portland as well and uh, didn't get as far. It kind of broke up after one day. But it, it succeeded so far in Seattle. I think this may be the sixth day. And uh, one day they gave it up in Portland. That doesn't mean it's over forever there either because of the quagmire and the mess that Portland is, but uh, not only warlords over little groups, but probably the cartels will take their slice, and uh, the Muslims will take theirs, and so on and so forth. I just saw an article this morning. We holler about racism and slavery from 200 years ago. There's slavery going on right now across the world and particularly in five countries in northern Africa they have black slaves there by the hundreds of thousands who are in the same position that the black people were here before the Civil War it's going on day by day and they rape and pillage and rob and take the children that are born to themselves and buy and sell them just like in the days of American slavery. Why isn't the U.N. doing something about that? Why is this allowed? They don't care. And they don't care about you and me. They care about ruling the world and getting rid of white people, basically. Because God has set the entire Gentile world against Israel. So Western Europe and America in Canada, will receive the brunt of this. I mean, Australia, New Zealand, wherever Israel is. In South Africa, the Israelites that are there are already, already being persecuted very violently, and many, many of them killed and their farms taken away. So, what we're seeing in Seattle, you might as well get used to, because our society is breaking apart. And everything they're doing from COVID-19, which was a plant, to these race riots, which were a plant, and I've seen enough evidence now to believe 
wholeheartedly that George Floyd was killed on purpose. It was scripted, and they already had piles of bricks and rocks and sticks ready to be planted around the cities, and the cops saw them being planted to help break windows so they could pillage and rob. All this is being planned by the New World Order people, and they are doing everything they can to totally collapse our economy and the world economy so they can come in with the New World Order. Now, lest somebody cry conspiracy theorist, all that's happening is simply what the book of Revelation and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel said would happen. That a great beast power would arise here at the end and would deceive the whole world and rule the whole world. It will be, as Daniel says, comprised of iron and miry clay in its feet. Uh, it's not going to be as strong as they wish it to be because they will be fighting among themselves for control. Just as you're going to have groups of people in this country vying for control of certain areas. It's happening with the gangs already. In one city, you got this gang, that gang, they're fighting over turf. Who gets this part of the city and who gets this part of the drug trade and so on. And you're going to see this nationwide as more things like Seattle happen. It's all in the book. We've read it over and over and over again. So do I need to even say it to you? You know it's there. But I think it helps us to remind us that there's nothing happening in the world right now out of all these things that you and I have not been reading in this book and talking about for the last, well, since I started this ministry, or God did, uh, 24 years ago. been going over all this over and over and over again. And now it's here. God talked about it long before it ever happened. And now we're not waiting to see it happen and talking about when it comes, we are in it. So, if ever we needed to seek God and get close to Him, it's now. Because some of this, and I may have a sermon on it next week or sometime soon, we're going to go through some of it. I firmly believe that. Uh, I don't know how much. We're already going through some of it. The COVID, uh, watching the race riots and so on. And here we are out here in the wilderness now, and we're not facing it. But brethren in the church around the world in the big cities are in the middle of it. So the church and the remnant that's still out there that hasn't gathered is going through some of it. And they're still there. How much of it they go through remains to be seen. But let's realize how thankful we should be that God has gotten us out of the middle of everything that is going on. It's a, it's a pretty sad time. I mean, we have people here who have only been here now a week, a little over, who uh, worked in Portland, lived just across the river from Portland, and have seen all this stuff developing with the communist leftist 
governments have experienced some of it. And thankfully, they got out of there before it got any worse. And it's getting worse everywhere. Anyway, enough of that for the moment. <clears throat> it was a peaceful morning out here. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and I am thankful for that, for every week we have of it out here. Now, last week, we were talking about those who have been sealed. We didn't finish getting through those scriptures. I showed you in John 6 that Christ himself was sealed of God as the first of the first fruits. Then we went to Romans 4, and I never finished uh, while we were there because I kind of got sidetracked. And I think uh, that it was a good thing. Uh, we were talking about the 144,000 and how God has made us to be a part of that. And then I got off onto the idea of us being, as part of that, the apple of his eye and how he is working not with the best apples, but the weak in the base, the worst. The wrinkled, the knotty, the worm-eaten, the bird-pecked, and the pooped-on apples. And he's straightening them out to make them the apple of his eye, to bring them to the perfection of what we ought to be. It is certainly a wonderful analogy he uses, and I quoted Zechariah on that, about how the church, the gathering actually, under the two witnesses, he says, is the apple of his eye right there in Zechariah 2. So uh, we're working toward being the kind of apples we ought to be. And I think I talked quite a little and got the, the message across that if God is working with something, and maybe I didn't say it quite this uh, clearly or succinctly, I thought about it later, if God has taken that which is not what it ought to be, and is working toward transforming it, and that's what we're to be, is transformed by His Spirit, so that we're not wormy and wrinkled and sour and everything. He's working on us. And He's clearing up the faults and the blemishes and the problems, and His eye is on the ones He's working with. Now, if I pick out an apple on a tree, and I say, that's the one I'm... I'm after, and then I see a bird land on it and start pecking on it and pooping on it, that distresses me, because that's the one I wanted to eat, and here it's being messed up. So, let's look at it for a moment from God's perspective. If He has one that He's working on, and He's clearing up the problems it's got, which is what we would all be, and he sees us come along and peck at what he's working on, how does that make him feel? If we're pecking the skin off of what he is working on. He doesn't take too kindly to that. And Satan is the primary one above all the rest of us doing that. Because he goes before God's throne every day, and he has a whole briefcase full of accusations against you and me. And he, while God is trying to heal us to be a perfect apple of his eye, Satan is trying to tear us down 
and show our faults, and He's working on us at the same time to make our faults worse instead of better. And that distresses God because what He's working on, He would prefer it left alone. And there's coming a time when He is going to tolerate that no more. There in Revelation 12, it says that Satan will not be allowed at the throne of God. He goes clear to the throne of God to bring our faults, our wormholes, all of this to God every day. Now, God is very, very patient, and He has a plan and a purpose, and He puts up with this. And so far, He's put up with it with you and me pecking at each other and pooping on one another. He doesn't like it, but he's put up with it, and he's had patience with us to give us space to repent and grow and quit getting in his way. Now, he's going to come to the same point with Satan where he said, that's it, I'm done. I will put up with this no longer. And he's going to cast him down from his throne and not allow him back there anymore on the day that he says, this is it. No more. And then Satan's going to come down. God will have taken those who have become the apple of his eye and put them in a safe place in Zion where he will protect them from Satan And it says Satan immediately, when he's cast down, goes after the remnant of her seed, the 90% who does not respond to the leadership God puts in place. So he's going to try to kill all of them since he can't get at those who are being protected, the 10%. You want to be among that 10%, brethren. You want to be there. And you don't want to help Satan with his work in the meantime, do you? Not at all. We had best be careful. Because there's going to time come a time, as it is with Satan, where God says, I'm not listening to this anymore. I'm doing something about it. And if we do not repent and overcome and learn to shut our big, fat mouths about each other and pecking at each other and pooping on each other, he's going to cut us off also. He's already said those who have rebelled that are here right now are going into famine and pestilence and they're going to die man, woman, and child. Every last one of them. Is that number complete? How much rebellion do you and I still have in us? How much do we have? How much do we maybe still need to get rid of? Because God is going to deal with it. He will deal with it. He is not going to have anyone here who is not willing to go with his plans and his purposes. I don't know how much time we have at this point to repent of that before the separation is made. I don't think it's long anymore. He's given us a long time. We've got to respond. You know, we can hear about it. What are we going to do about it? God doesn't like hearers only. He likes doers. 
That's what he likes. So, I'm not gossiping. Okay, you're not gossiping. Are you listening to gossip? What's the difference? You're participating in it. You know, gossipers need to learn to shut their big fat mouths. And hearers need to shut their big fat ears. You have a responsibility to shut your ears that is just as big a responsibility as shutting our mouths. When people start running down God's apples, we need to tell them so. We need to tell them, don't say that. I don't want to hear that. That's our responsibility when we hear it. And it's their responsibility when they say it. It takes two to complete that communication. Got to have mouths and ears both. So, I'm telling you, God is only going to take it so long. And He's going to weed out the rotten apples. Those who won't be fixed. Those who insist on being what they are instead of being fixed by His Word and His Spirit. Hey, I don't got to weed them out. I don't got to weed me out. I got to get me straightened out and not be a rotten one. And you got to get you straightened out and not be a rotten one. And trust in the grace and mercy of God that will be included among the apples He gathers together to do His work. That's what we want to do. All right, how do you do that? As I said a couple of weeks ago, we don't get in a fetal position and cry and whine and moan about how bad we are and, oh, life is so tough. No, we don't shrink back. That's what Paul makes very clear. God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back, but that we are to come boldly before the throne of grace and mercy and love and ask for His power, His strength, His spirit, to overcome and to grow, not to sit here feeling sorry for ourselves. That doesn't do us any good. It doesn't heal any of our imperfections. Going to God and receiving His Spirit to overcome is the key. And that needs to be done with boldness. How can you be bold when you're still a sinner? How can you be bold? Because you have faith that He loves you. You have faith that He cares about you. You have faith that He called you and brought you and brought you to repentance and to begin to change your way of thinking to think like Him instead of like this world around us that we were part of. So we can love one another. He loved us so much that He gave Christ for us that's you and that's me, that we might have eternal life. So he wants us to have eternal life. He wants it with all his being. He says it is his pleasure to give us of his kingdom. It pleases him to be able to do that. So why should you snivel and cry and feel sorry for yourself? Because He's all for you. 
And He likes it when you approach Him with boldness and expect Him to forgive and to offer you grace and mercy. That's what He wants you to do. Because when you're in the fetal position, you're not going to overcome anything. It's when you're up on your knees with your hands lifted to God, asking for the power of His Spirit, that things can be accomplished. That's the attitude to come to Him with. I mean, yeah, if you've just made a mistake... There's time to bow your head and ask for forgiveness and mercy and repent and acknowledge. Rather than justify our sins, we need to acknowledge them and go to Him for forgiveness and mercy. But then get back in the positive mode as quickly as possible because you do have faith that He forgives and that He loves. You know what, if he doesn't, what are we going through this for? If we get in his kingdom, and we find that he doesn't love us, and he's still trying to get us for our sins, wouldn't that be a pretty long eternity? I don't want to be there if it's that way, and you don't either. So why are we striving to get into his kingdom if we don't believe Him when He says it will be peaceful and merciful and loving and no tears and no pain and no sorrow and any of those things that we suffer down here because of our sins and our weaknesses and our faults, that will all be removed because we'll be transformed and have a godly mind that automatically thinks good instead of bad. That is a transformation that I don't understand. I've never experienced a completely clean, beautiful, holy mind. I've never experienced it. Maybe little glimpses of it here and there after repentance and prayer and feeling loved by God and loving God. We get glimpses of it. But we still look through a glass darkly. (laughs) We can't quite grasp what he has for us. Now, you and I get it better than the world out there, even the whole Protestant religious world, because we understand the Scriptures and what he says about it, but we still can't truly grasp the difference between God and man. It's too vast. He automatically thinks good thoughts. He automatically thinks well of people. We automatically are the other direction. And we've got to switch that automatic button off and walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. we just got to do it, brethren. We've got to get there. Love each other and worship Him and love of Him, and we'll be okay. Let's go back to Romans 4, though, uh, now that I got on that soapbox and jumped off it. But I wanted to finish that thought about the apples and how we need to help God heal each other instead of making his job worse by pecking at each other. Because he wants us to have a full skin and to be healthy and firm and delicious and juicy. 
That's the way he wants us to be. So let's work at getting to where he wants us to be. Now, he's talking about Abraham here. We discussed that Christ was one of the first fruits. Let's go on down. Uh, I think I began to depart from the specific um, context here about verse 7 and 8, but it's, it's talking about us, and I, I don't think it was a bad thing to digress into that. But he says here in verse 7, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So we enter a blessed state when we repent of our sins. We quit sinning. We turn to God, and His blood covers our sin so that we're not under the curse of the law, which is the penalty of death. We are under grace or life. And you're blessed when you have life. I had a strange thought this morning. I'll, I'll throw this at you. We've, we've got this social distancing now. How do they determine us to be six feet apart? Some have said 22 feet. Some have said four's right. And uh, it just occurred to me, when we die, they bury us six feet under. Six feet under. That's proper social distancing, I guess. Because if they bury any shallower than that, same thing might happen to you that happened to that guy. They all start dying. And the cemeteries are full. And flowers grow on graves. We talk about pushing up posies, don't we? Well, maybe if they bury you a little too shallow, you won't... The flowers won't grow. You've got to be six feet down for proper social distancing and flower growing. But then we get all these people that maybe got buried two inches too shallow, and they don't grow flowers. So now we go to China, and we buy these artificial flowers we can put on those graves so that uh, they'll have flowers on them. Maybe when they start killing us, they'll bury us six feet deep so that other people don't get the same disease and die that we had. I can imagine somebody out there with a tape measure. Now, boys, get back in the hole. You've got to go down two more inches. You've got to get proper social distancing here before we cover them up. What about in China, where they're digging these mass graves and then covering them over how deep, who knows? I think there's an analogy there that's <laughs> kind of bizarre, but maybe worth thinking about a little bit. Uh, this world is sick, and it is dying, and the virus is killing us, and Satan intends to put us all six feet under. To Satan, social distancing is six feet, because that's how deep they generally bury people. He wants us dead and buried. So let's live and thrive and survive and not be put down to social distancing forever. Isn't what we need. Anyway, that's aside from the point, but we need to live and we need to thrive in God's way. So blessed are we if our iniquities are forgiven and we don't die for them and be buried not only physically on this earth, but forever in the lake of fire. 
Blessed is the man to whom the eternal will not impute sin. Comes this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. His faith, his trust, his belief in God was reckoned as righteousness. And you need righteousness to be in his kingdom. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Then he says, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Abraham was called and given his promises before he was ever circumcised. So circumcision physically has nothing to do with the calling of God. It is unnecessary. And Paul said in another place, circumcision is nothing. And yet people still follow what the Jews do and circumcise their children. It's not necessary. Personal preference maybe, but it's not necessary. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, uh, as he he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believed, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So he said, he's talking about Gentiles and Israelites here, because Abraham was not an Israelite. Do you realize that? He never became one, actually. Because Israel did not even develop until after Isaac, when Jacob was renamed Israel. So there were no Israelites before Jacob. Abraham or Isaac, Sarah, none of them were Israelites. But they were given the status of righteousness because of their faith and their belief in God being uncircumcised. So God was able to confer that, and he put a seal of the righteous on Abraham. Verse 11. So Christ is sealed of God, and Abraham, who became the father of Israel, and our father in the faith, was also sealed of God. So that shows that those in Hebrews 11, including Abraham, were part of those sealed. Sealed simply means you have God's stamp, God's approval. When a king had a seal, if a document was given or a letter was done, he stamped it with his seal, which is the same as your notarized signature, essentially. meant the same thing. And if he was to send it and he didn't want anybody to read it, they closed an envelope or, or a scroll, and they put that seal on it, which sealed the scroll so that nobody could read it until it reached the one who was supposed to open it. That's the way God did it. So, with us, He seals us, as He says in Revelation, in our forehead. That's where the beast will do it too, arm and forehead. But God seals us and says, that one's... Mine. He puts his stamp on us. He put his stamp of approval on Christ, and he put his stamp of approval on Abraham. 
and imputed righteousness to him because of him believing God. And Abraham believed in hope without hope. Paul goes on to say that here in this same context. In other words, he and Sarah were both far beyond being able to engender children. He was too old to do his part, and she was past menopause and too old to do her part. And God came and said, you're going to have a baby. And I can kind of understand why they would laugh or chuckle. You know, say, hey, that's impossible. We're both beyond that. And God kind of got on Sarah because of her attitude there. And he, it took her a little while to believe. And I'm thankful for that because sometimes it takes us a while to get the picture and truly believe God in whatever He tells us. And we had better, in anything God shows us, reveals to us, tells us in some way, we had better honor that and stick to that with all our heart. Now, sometimes we don't know if something came from God or not, do we? But if there's a chance of that, you better pay attention to it. We know the truth that we understand came from God, and we had better pay attention to it. Now, she sobered up pretty quick and quit laughing, and she realized that's a message from God that I'm going to get pregnant and have a baby. And she and Abraham probably looked at each other and said, how's this going to happen? There was no hope. I mean, physically looking at it, there was no hope of that. Just none. But God said it was going to happen. Well, do you believe God when He shows you something, or do you not? Do you live by it? Do you go by it? Or do you just forget about it and go on about life? No. They waited, and they hoped in spite of hope, because God had said it. And if God says it, it's going to happen. They believed that. And that was counted as righteousness. And you know what? It eventually happened. At the time prescribed, Isaac was born, because made God made everything functional again with both Abraham and Sarah. She was old. She probably hadn't had her monthly in 30, 40 years. Who knows? And he hadn't been able to do anything for a long, long time either. And you know what? When God fixed them, I don't mean fixed in the neutered sense, I mean repaired, and things started working again. After Sarah died, Abraham married a woman about a hundred years younger than he was and had a whole batch of kids after that. So when God answered, he answered in a big way. And Isaac was born. And Jacob was then born. And Israel began. But God imputed their hope, their trust, their faith, their belief that what God said would happen, would happen. And it did. It did. Not as quick as they would have maybe wanted. He promised, you're going to have a kid. So they thought, well, let's start now. 
but there was no way to start because nothing worked. And they had to wait until God performed a miracle so that Isaac would be born exactly when God wanted it to happen. And it did. What an incredible example of listening to God and saying, All right, Lord, you said it. It's going to happen. He gave us this book. And he said, Every word in it is truth. And everything in here is going to happen. So read it and follow it. And all the things I said are going to happen. Now, when I say every word, it's been translated, and there have been some mistranslations, vague translations. There are a couple of places they've monkeyed with it and added stuff. But God warned us in Revelation 21, 22, not to add to or take from this word because it's the word of God. So if somebody takes from it, they're in trouble. When they say you can throw out the book of Luke, they're in trouble. When they say you've got to think higher than Scripture, they're incredibly vain and presumptuous and crazy as heck. I mean, come on. I'm sorry I softened that to the Mormon phrase. They're crazy as hell. Because that attitude is not going to get you into the kingdom of God. It'll get you into the lake of fire if you don't repent of it. Nobody can think higher than God. Satan thought he could. And anyone who thinks he can think higher than this word and higher than God is putting himself in the place of Satan. And Satan is not going to be in the kingdom of God. Guaranteed. If he is, I don't want to be there. But I... Trust and believe he won't be there. He's going to be put away and never again influence anyone in the entire universe. Glory, hallelujah. Because he influences us every day that goes by. And it gets tiresome and weary to fight the fight that we have to fight. But he said, don't give up. Endure to the end, and your salvation is assured. So, Abraham and Sarah are going to be there. It says so in Hebrews 11. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. And here in chapter 1, let's begin in verse 21. Now, he which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, is God. We, If we are a part of His church, have been properly baptized, had the laying on of hands, and received His Holy Spirit as a uh, beginning, as a uh, gestation period, we've been anointed of God. Chosen and selected, anointed, for a very important purpose, and that's to be a part of the Bride of Christ who has also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So we saw Christ is the first of the first fruits is sealed. Abraham and those who believe God in the Old Testament as enumerated in Hebrews 11 are also sealed then. And so were these people in the early New Testament church. So the sealing of Revelation 7 
is not just an end-time thing where God seals 144,000. It's something that started as a process long ago. Noah and Enoch were sealed of God. All those who obeyed God in the Old Testament were. And there weren't very many of them. But even the early New Testament church then was already sealed. Paul spoke of these people in Corinth as having sealed them and given them the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. What is earnest? In a real estate transaction, you put down earnest money, which shows that you're sincere and you mean to do this thing. If you say, okay, I'll buy it and disappear, uh, the seller has no idea whether you'll show up again or not. But if you put a substantial amount of money down as earnest money, then he has a pretty good idea you're coming back because he knows you don't want to lose money. So in case, unless you get run over or have a heart attack, you'll probably be back if you put earnest money down. It, it kind of binds the thing so that you both understand, yeah, this is a sincere, meaningful thing that's going to happen. So when God gives us His Spirit, the laying on of hands after baptism, He says that's the earnest of what is coming. As in the case of a house. Christ said, I'm going to go back to my Father's throne, and in his, at His throne are many mansions, and I'll prepare a place, a house, for you. A mansion. The New Jerusalem. He's preparing it. Well, we can't move in yet, can we? It isn't fully prepared yet because the 144,000 are not completely finished yet. So it's a building in process. And He has given us the earnest of His Spirit. You and I do not have fully the Spirit of God in the way that God's Spirit is a part of Him and of Christ. Because they are that. We're still human, but we have earnest from God by the indwelling of His Spirit to help us overcome and grow so that we might receive the whole house at some day. When everything in the contract has been met, we have grown, we have overcome. We have ceased to sin as much as we can. We're not living in sin. We're doing our best to get out of it. So we do our part, and then whatever else needs to be forgiven and changed is what grace is about. But our faith to move forward and overcome and grow by the power of His Spirit puts us in a position where He's willing to forgive us and give us the gift of eternal life in His kingdom. That life is a gift. We cannot earn it. How are you going to earn something that expensive, something that valuable? You can work your whole lifetime trying to do good and never come to the point that you have earned 
the right to be in the kingdom of God. You can't earn that. You know, I might start out in life working as a ditch digger or truck driver or a clerk or whatever, and I look at my weekly wage or my monthly wage, and I think, I wonder if I'll ever make a million dollars in my life. I wonder if I'll ever earn a million dollars. Because an awful lot of people live on this earth and work all their lives, 40, 50 years, and they haven't earned a million dollars yet. So if I think, am I going to earn a trillion dollars? All the work I could do down here isn't going to get me there. Nobody has yet, although there are a couple of them that are getting close with social media and so on. But you can't earn something of that value. And the kingdom of God is of greater value than anything on this earth by far. So when people say they're going to, by works, earn salvation, you ain't good enough. You don't work hard enough. You don't do enough good to ever earn something that valuable. You have to overcome and grow and have forgiveness of sin, which is removal of the death penalty. And if we do our part, God will say, you know, you've changed. You've overcome. You've walked by my spirit. You've made progress. I'm going to give you eternal life. You can't do works all your life, do good deeds, and then come to the first resurrection. Well, let's see. You'll be dead in the grave. How are you going to demand eternal life? You're dead. And even if you're alive, you say, well, I've been good, God. You've got to give me eternal life. You've got to raise me off the ground to meet Christ because I've been good and I've done good works. And he'll say, I'm going to confer eternal life on people and none of them have done good enough to earn this. And you haven't either. Sorry. If you think you earned it, you're nuts. The Pharisees, by their good works, their good deeds that they wrote on their sleeves, thought that they had earned a position with God. And what did Christ call them? Snakes, serpents, unwashed cups, sepulchers, full of stinking, rotten bodies. That's what he called them, for thinking they could earn something as great as salvation by their good works. Can't do it. Your reward might be reckoned some because you have done well and you have done good to people and he might give you a higher reward. You're not necessarily going to be in the 144,000th chair at the bottom, if, you know, in the auditorium, if you put it that way. You might be higher than that. We've already been told the apostles are going to be ruling over 12,000 each. So, for their training and their dedication, God is going to confer upon them a very high position. And where we are in there, we have no clue. No clue whatever. I just want to be there. If it's the last chair, 
That's fine. You know, we've played musical chairs around here at times. And I didn't really care as I circled those chairs which one I got. I could have cared less which chair I got. Just as long as I got one. And I'd push somebody else's behind off it to get it. If I had to. And often did. We just need one spot. One chair. When the music stops. And the real music begins. You just need one spot. So it doesn't matter how high it is. You don't need to be a Pharisee saying, Oh Lord, you've got to put me way up there because I've done so many good deeds. See? We're not to let our right hand know what our left hand does. And if we're doing good works and doing good things for our brethren and people, and we, we just do it because it's there to do, and I see a lot of that with you. I really do. I see you helping each other left and right and showing that kind of love. And I thank God for it, brethren, that you're that way. Don't make any difference. Whoever needs something, you're there. Thank you. And God thanks you. But it still doesn't earn you salvation. It might help your reward. But we can't earn salvation. We can grow. We can overcome. We can walk in the Spirit and move forward in faith saying thank you for the grace and the mercy and the love that you're going to show because you're God. Wow. We've been sealed by God if we're walking in the faith. His stamp is on us. Apple on the tree, same analogy. He selected it. So if he sealed us as part of that, he expects us to be there. He expects us to make it. Now, the only way that that seal can be removed is if we turn from him. You know, he approved of us and sealed us as members of his church. And he'll never remove that seal. He says, I will never forsake you. I will never depart from you. I will be with you always. Clear to the end. He says, He will never depart from us. we got to believe Him. The only way that seal can be removed is if we depart from Him. Then He'll take it away. Because we insist on it. No. Don't put Him in that position. we got to move forward. We've been sealed. All right, let's move on then to another part of this, which we found in Revelation 7 and 14, and that is those who are redeemed. I need to move fast. I've been talking about things, but they're important things, other than just this. But to just say you're sealed and to say you're redeemed without understanding what that means and what responsibility 
accrues to us by understanding that, then it's just knowledge. Okay, we've been sealed. We've been redeemed. But what does that mean? So that's why I'm going into more detail. Let's go on from there then to uh, Colossians 1. I want to cover a few fairly quickly here so that we get a a little bit of a, a picture. See, people get confused back in Revelation 7 and 14 and the way to, con- to clear some of that confusion is to go to supporting scriptures internally within the scripture to find out, uh, well, I keep flipping here and I can't find Colossians. There we are. They get confused, but if you use some of these other scriptures to help define what we find in Revelation 7 and 14. It clears, it clears the mystery up. Colossians 1 and uh, verse 14. Speaking of Christ here, this whole context is speaking of Him, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So, redemption, or being redeemed, only comes through the blood of Christ. Anybody who has not placed themselves under the blood of Christ and God accepted them there cannot be redeemed from this world. Redemption is a process that occurs uh, through Christ. And when you redeem something, you pay the price for it, whatever that might be. Uh, If you loan somebody something, And he doesn't bring it back. You go to his house to redeem it, to bring it back to you. Now, Adam and Eve departed from God. And they remained away from God for the rest of their lives. And mankind is turned away from God. Now, he sent Christ to begin a redemption process. So all redemption really means is returning to God. Returning to the one who owns you, who purchased you with his life. That's what redemption is. is redeeming you from those who are going to die and not be in the first resurrection, but maybe live into the millennium or come up in the second resurrection, or God forbid, in the third. So, he's looked out here at all the people on earth, here at the end time, begun a work, a church, through Herbert Armstrong, and then that went away because of our unrighteousness, and now he's building a ladder temple. He'll be starting soon. Foundation, I believe, has been laid. So, the building will start soon. When the gathering comes on a spiritual level and on a physical level when it's time to build the temple in Jerusalem, which is very soon. But it's a process of removing us from Satan's clutches and the world and redeeming us to God so that we really, truly belong to him again. Because what did we do? We turned ourselves over to Satan as slaves. 
He deceives the whole world. And we were part of that world. And we belong to Satan. So he sent Christ to defeat Satan and to begin the redemption process. And that's why he says we are purchased with the blood of Christ. That was the price that was required to bring us back from Satan, was to come under his blood, which is greater than Satan and greater than anything. So, he's redeemed us. Uh, where was I here? Verse 14. I want verse 15 now. He's redeemed us through his blood, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. <coughs> so Christ is the firstborn of all. He's the first of the firstfruits. And he's redeeming us from the world and Satan to himself. So that we're no longer his, ours, but we are his slaves. We no longer work for ourselves, brethren. You don't work for yourself. You work for Christ. In a bigger plan and purpose than you could ever generate for yourself. We've got a world out here who is set on self. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I can do anything I want. I'll set my own life. I have my own goals and purposes. Now you sacrificed that and became a slave of Christ by accepting the blood and the forgiveness and his life and the promise of eternal life if you would serve him. So by his blood he redeemed us and made us a first fruit. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth Visible and visible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He's, without him was nothing created, it says on down. So, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You can't make your own choices anymore. Follow me? You have only two ways to go. You can either obey the one you belong to, or you can obey Satan and the world and your fleshly desires. There's only two ways to go. Now, you've chosen to submit your life to him and to think like he thinks, to walk like he walks, and to do what he does. You have selected that path. Now you've got to stay on it because every fiber of your being wants to get off the path and do what you want to do. Human nature wants to do its own thing. But you surrendered to him to do his thing. Now you've got to fight your desire to do your thing and do his. But you selected that yourself after he called you. You didn't do it on your own. He called you. And you said, yes, Lord. Now keep saying, yes, Lord. Don't say, no, Lord. Wait a minute. That hill's too big for me to climb. 
This time, Lord, you gave me a mountain. A mountain I may never climb. No. He said he won't put anything on us that without his help we cannot conquer, survive, and do. No temptation greater than we can handle. He's promised us that. So if you think it's too big, you don't believe him. So get busy fixing it. Because he said he won't do that to you. Now, there are days when you look at that day and you look at yourself and you think, Oh, this ain't going to happen. Well, get over yourself. Because God says it is and he's a lot bigger than you. And you can get it done. We can grow. We can overcome. He selected us. First uh, Corinthians one. And let's look at verse thirty. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in God. So all these things mentioned up here come from God. We're in Christ who is giving us wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do and when to do it and who to do it to. And righteousness. That's right conduct, doing what is right. Sanctification. What is sanctification? Big theological word. All it means is set aside. Set aside for a specific purpose, and that is to be a part of the kingdom of God and to live forever in peace and joy and happiness. That's what we're called for. And redemption. Redemption comes through the blood of Christ, as I said. We're just redeemed from Satan and the world and set aside for his purposes. So, the 144,000 are those redeemed from the earth. Romans 8. Here, let's go to verse 23. And not only they, well, he says, the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. But not just the creation itself, which is groaning because of Satan and his ways in the world. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the wit, the redemption of our body. Now here, he ties the first fruits and those who are redeemed together in one verse, one statement. So, just as in Revelation 7 and 14, he says, These are the first fruits, they're redeemed from the earth. Here, Paul puts it in a different way. First fruits that are redeemed. And he says, The 144,000 back there are the first fruits. So, if the first fruits and the redeemed are the same, there's only going to be 144,000 redeemed from the earth when Christ returns. That's all that's in the first resurrection. Period. People will argue, but the internal evidence of the Bible is pretty clear. If you pay attention to it. 
Let's go to Hebrews. Chapter 9. Uh, verse 12 here. Speaking of Christ, our high priest, he says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Christ entered the Holy of Holies, and he died. And his blood is big enough to redeem us from sin. Verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So redemption means eternal inheritance being part of the kingdom of God. And as we've seen, that's the first fruits. So that means you'll be in the first resurrection, not a later one. Uh, let's look at uh, Luke 21. I'll throw a few of these at us to see what the context of the Bible says about what is summarized there in Revelation 7 and 14. Luke 21. And here, let's go to verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. He's talking here in this chapter about the times of the end, same as Luke 20, uh, Matthew 24. And he says, when you see all these things happening that we're beginning to see happening right now, your redemption is near. So what's he going to do? He's going to have the first resurrection, which will redeem us from the earth and Satan. We rise to meet Christ in the air, part of the first resurrection of the first fruits. And that's when your redemption is complete. <coughs> when we come under his blood through baptism, symbolically die, he gives us life through the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands that that gestation might occur, that a child of God might begin to develop until it's mature enough to be changed when Christ returns. So it's the earnest of the Spirit in the beginning of our redemption. He's beginning to draw us away from the world and to lead us to His kingdom, but the redemption is not complete until we rise off the ground to meet him in the air. And changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, then you're fully redeemed from the earth. You're fully out of the grasp of Satan at that point. Boy, do we ever want to get there, don't we? Galatians 3. I'm going to go over a little overtime again. It's not really overtime. <clears throat> Longer than I usually speak, that's all. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is, death, being made a curse for us. He died. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, 
Faith in Him gets us where we need to be. 1 Peter 1. First Peter one. <clears throat> Let's pick this up in verse fourteen. As obedient children, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts in our ignorance. The way we were living out in this world was not right. So he says, Don't do that. Don't live according to the, your former lusts. But as he which has called you is holy. So be you holy in all manner of conduct. We are to be holy as God is holy in everything we think, say, and do. I thought about this the other morning, just cogitating a little. You know, we, we say there's the Sabbaths are a holy day. Every week is a holy day. And then we have seven other days among the feasts that God has designated holy days. But it just occurred to me that really with us, every day is a holy day. Or every day should be a holy day. What is a holy day? It is a day set aside by God for holiness and for a holy convocation, a godly meeting. Aren't we to have a Holy meeting with God every day in prayer and study of His Word. So with us, every day should be a holy day. I should be holy every day. We need to think of ourselves that way. Is what I'm thinking today holy? Is what I'm saying holy? Is what I'm doing holy? before God. Now there gives you some room for improvement because we all fall far short of being holy every day. But we got to be working on it. In all matter of conduct, because it is written, be you holy, for I am holy. We have no time to take off from that. You don't just wait for a holy day to come along. You make each day holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect to persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conduct... Received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's what redeems us. Who truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. There's where our redemption comes. Now let's go to Revelation 5. This is really a good one to back up what I've been telling you about Revelation 7 and 14 with the sealed and the redeemed. Chapter 5, verse 9. Now here are people who stand before the kingdom of God. And what did they do? They sung a new song saying. Now he tells us, we'll go back and review it to wrap this up. 
in Revelation 14, I think. Is it 7 or 14? I think it's 14. It said only the 144,000 could sing the new song. He mentions the new song to one of the churches in Revelation 2 through 3, that they would sing a new song before God. But here it says that these sing a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us into, unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, there's several things here that corroborate Revelation 7 and 14 in that that is the only first fruits, the only ones redeemed, the only ones who can sing the new song. What does it tell us here? These can sing it. These were redeemed. And some say that it has to be only a people of Israelite blood who are virgins physically in Revelation 7, and that's all that can be included. But here he's talking about those who are sealed and redeemed, and they can sing this song, and they are of every tongue and people and nation and kindred. So he's saying that the redeemed, the sealed, the 144,000, who are the only ones that can sing the song, come from all races, all peoples. Not just Israelites, but people who are blood Gentiles. All will be part of the 144,000 who are the bride of Christ. That verse says an awful lot toward proving who these in Revelation 7 and 14 are. Let's quickly review that then. Here at the end, he says, Don't hurt the earth till we've sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Well, we already saw Christ was sealed originally. Abraham was sealed. Some in the early New Testament church was sealed. And here at the end, speaking of this time now that we're in, some more are being sealed. So sealing isn't 144,000 at the end. It is a process that has been going on from Abraham through Christ and through the early New Testament, and now because Paul spoke of those early New Testament Christians as being sealed. So this isn't just an end-time thing. It is the culmination. It's the final adding of numbers to this to make it complete. And I saw the number that were sealed, 144,000. These are those which were sealed of 12,000 of each tribe. And yet Revelation 5.9 tells us that these who have been designated as part of a tribe of Israel spiritually have come from all races and peoples around the world. Not just blood Israelites. That's ridiculous. If that was the case, why did Paul go to the Gentiles? And after this was done, he saw this great multitude of all kinds of peoples that nobody could number. That's the great white throne judgment. Those who come up then, not at the first resurrection.
All right, let's go to 14. I looked, and on Mount Zion, the bride comes down with Christ to Mount Zion, 144,000. That's all. And they sung a new song. So the 144,000 are the only ones that can sing it. They're the only ones in that resurrection. And no man could learn that song but those 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So the 144,000 are the ones redeemed, drawn to God, and become part of His kingdom. These are they which were not defiled with women. Doesn't mean they've never been married. Peter's going to be there as one of the leaders of the 12,000 of whatever tribe he's over, right? And Peter was married. And Paul said, Peter leads about a wife, and so do the other apostles, but he had chosen not to be married. So we know those apostles will be part of the 144,000, each one of them ruling over 12,000 members of the bride. But they weren't virgins. Physically, they had wives and kids. So the Scripture itself debunks this idea that some people have. So they're virgin spiritually. Defiled with women means marriage is honorable in the bed, undefiled, right? It's only outside of marriage that the bed is is defiled. Not within it. In marriage, it's wonderful. Outside of marriage, it's illegal and leads to death. So, these are not defiled with women. Now, a wife does not defile you. Illegal sex defiles you. So, these are those which were not defiled by false churches, false uh, apostles, by Satan. Because women are very clearly recognized as types of churches in the Bible. So, not defiled by false religion and idolatry, but purged of that. Those people that Paul called firstfruits in Corinth, and virgins he called them. They weren't by any means physical virgins. They had committed every atrocity sexually there is. And yet they had repented of that and become clean and pure or virtuous before God spiritually. This is all about spiritual. It's not about physical. Physical people who have repented and become virtuous. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And we find in the end of the book of Revelation, that's the bride. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits. As I've said many times, no more, no less. The 144,000 are the only ones redeemed from the earth, and they're all the first fruits that there are. That's all the first resurrection includes. They were first fruits to God and to the Lamb, the apples of His eye turn out to be 144,000 good apples who have been redeemed so that they're no longer idolatrous and pagan. They're no longer sinful. They're no longer what they were. They have been transformed and become different. And they are included as the bride of Christ.
So Revelation 7 and 14 are only talking of 144,000. That's all. That which is mentioned after is the innumerable multitude comes up in the great white throne judgment, or some live through into the millennium, but they're not part of the bride. They become the children of Christ and the bride later on. So I hope that clears that up, and I hope over these two sermons we've come to get a better idea of what it means to be set aside or sealed by God and redeemed from the earth, and that he expects us to respect that redemption and that sealing and to come to be holy in everything that we say and do day by day. And we will all fail in it, but we keep working at it and don't give up because little by little we will grow and we will overcome and be more what he wants us to be. So we have a lot of work to do because... We don't qualify, and it's easy to see the pecks and the bird spots and the wrinkles in each other. But there are no wrinkles in God. There are no wrinkles in Christ. And he says, those of us who compare ourselves among ourselves are not wise. And when we do compare ourselves among ourselves and talk down about each other, we're not being wise. And we just read today that he gives us wisdom. So, he expects us to respect each other and love each other and help in the encouragement and strengthening of each other. That's what we are to positively do, is to help one another be the kind of apple God wants. So, we should be helping heal each other and strengthen each other, encourage one another, in God's way, is what we are set here to do, to show his love to one another, not to tear down and make him repair the damage that we're doing. So let's not damage one another. Let's help, strengthen, encourage everyone to be what we ought to be so we can be part of the kingdom of God in love. And men will know on this earth that we are the disciples of God if we truly love one another and show it in the way that we interact and treat each other. That's how man will know, and that's how God will know. Because that's what he says. So, brethren, let's live together in peace, harmony, and love. That's what we're here to do.